following along in the Bibles and the benches. It's page 1868. Hebrews 7. As we've seen from a Belgic Confession, Article 10, which is where we've come in our survey of that good confession, our idea, our topic tonight is Jesus, true and eternal God. And Hebrews chapter 7 reflects this idea, this truth, that Jesus is indeed the eternal Son of God. That's why we're going to this chapter tonight. We just let you know here at the beginning that there's a couple of, of concepts in Hebrews chapter 7 that are central to the chapter itself, central to the progression of um, the apostles or whoever exactly wrote Hebrews, uh, the central to their argument in the book, namely the uh, change of the law and its priestly ancestral requirements and also the oath by which God appointed Christ. Those are certainly central concepts in this chapter, but we're going to steer clear of them for the sake of, of time, kind of uh, complex issues that we've uh, got to get around for uh, some of the other concepts that are in Hebrews 7 tonight, but especially we'll drive home the truth that Christ is uh, eternal God. Actually, we're going to begin reading at uh, the last sentence of chapter 6, verse 20, and on through uh, Hebrews chapter 7. This is God's Word. Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, and without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater person. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there also must be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, 
for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who have come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that old habits die hard, don't they? Old habits die hard. And all of the novelty, all of the excitement of coming to Christ had worn off for the people to whom the author is writing this letter. With great joy, they heard the message of the glories of Jesus Christ that He had fulfilled all of the Old Testament They cast themselves upon Jesus and the church was established and they went forward to follow Jesus through the teachings of the apostles. But that initial novelty and that excitement of coming to Christ wore off. And their old habits and their old religious practices of Old Testament Judaism just kept coming up in their minds. Christian worship, following Jesus in the New Testament according to the rule of the apostles, was nowhere near as action-packed as the temple worship and all of its sacrifices. There were certainly not all the religious holidays that were celebrated under the Old Testament religious calendar. There weren't as many smells and bells and whistles. And so the Hebrews were facing a decision. After all the novelty of coming to Christ said we're not, they were facing a decision, really a temptation to forsake Christ and to go back to Old Testament Judaism? Would they continue to pursue Christ or would they go back to practicing the Old Covenant religion? You can't have both, as we'll see. It's either that you understand that the Old Testament law system with all of its glories outwardly and all of its ceremonies and sacrifices of the law, all of the kinds of religion that the Old Testament people of God practiced, that that was instituted for a time and it was temporary and it was meant to all point forward to Christ and once Christ came, it was finished. And either you accepted that premise or you gave up Christ altogether. Because to go back to that would be to deny the one to whom it was all pointing forward. That's the decision that they faced. Either they acknowledged 
that Old Testament Judaism, all of its religious forms, was done, it was temporary, it passed away, or they would give up Christ. You could have one or the other, you can't have both. They knew that, that's the decision that they faced as they were sliding more and more and back and being tempted by falling into their old covenant patterns of worship. And here in the book of Hebrews, all of it really is a warning to those people not to go back to those things, but to stay holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here tonight, there is something specific that the author to the Hebrews wants them to think about, wants them to consider as they're facing this decision. He talks about a lot of different things that he wants them to consider as he he pleads with them on behalf of Christ to hold fast and to endure. But here in chapter 7, there's something very specific that he wants them to think about before they proceed one way or the other. And it's this. He says, I want you to think about one major player in Old Testament Judaism that you're slipping back into. I want you to think about one major player in Old Testament Judaism, that whole religious system. One major player that I want you to focus your thoughts on and us to focus our thoughts on tonight is the priest of the Old Covenant law system. What was the duty of the priest in Old Testament religion. The job of the priest was to represent God to the people and in turn to represent the people back to God. But more than that, if there ever arose an occasion where an obstacle arose in the relationship between God to His people or between the people to their God, then the priest's job was not only to represent God from the people and represent God to the people, His job was then to remove the obstacle to make the relationship smooth again between God, the Father, and His people. He didn't just represent God, represent the people. He had the duty to remove any obstacles that arose in that relationship. And obviously, there was in their day, and there is in our day today, an obstacle in the relationship between God and His people. God and us, which is what? Our sin. Their sin. So they and we need a priest to remove the obstacle of sin and restore our smooth relationship with the Father. And they needed it too. The author of Hebrews says, I want you to think about the priest that is going to be able to remove the obstacle of sin and to smooth out the relationship of alienation that we have caused with our Father in Heaven. And of course, the first thing that he points out is to these Hebrews you can forget about going to an Old Testament priest and thinking that he is able to remove the sin obstacle that stands between you and the Father. Forget about it. It's impossible. Meaning this, that if you go back to the Old Covenant law system and you rely on one of its major players, which is the priest, he is unable to remove the obstacle that you have in your relationship with God. And the enmity cannot be removed. Don't go back there. Why is the priest in the Old Covenant law system unable to mediate for sinners, unable to remove the obstacle? Well, first of all, the reason that he gives is because they die. The problem with a priest is, in the Old Covenant law system, the priest lives for a while, and even if he's able to accomplish some sort of reconciliation between God and those whom he is serving for a certain period of time, that priest dies, goes into the grave, and is no longer a priest. Verse 23, there have been many of those priests 
since death prevented them from continuing in office. You should have read about the Old Covenant law system. You should have thought about it a little bit. How come there wasn't only just one priest throughout the whole time? Well, it's because they died, and that shows an inherent weakness in the priesthood of the Old Covenant law system. They died. They're unable to continue on removing the sin obstacle. And never is there going to be a priest that comes from that system, that comes from that priestly line of Levi, Aaron, that will be able to live a forever and stop this endless cycle of death. Many of those priests, death prevented them from continuing in office. There's another problem with the priests, he says, and you know this. Verse 27, they offer sacrifices day by day, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. And verse 28, the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. They're weak not only because they die, but they're weak because they're sinful. How can you have someone who is sinful able to stand before you when the problem that you have in the first place is your own sin? This is one of the reasons, or one of the ways in which, as we said, Hebrews chapter 7 reflects the idea that Jesus is true eternal God. He has to be. Because a sinner cannot pay for others. And after the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, there was no other one who was sinless. So we needed the God-man, the perfection of the divinity of Christ, to take on human flesh and come into the world. A sinner cannot pay for others. Day after day, these priests would have to sacrifice for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, and then they would die. They were weak. You should have seen that yourself. Forget about the old covenant law system. It cannot remove the obstacle that you have. Jesus Christ, of course, on the other hand, is the only priest who is able to remove our sin obstacle that stands between the Father and us. Look at verse 24. He's different from the priests in what sense? Because Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus, verse 16, has the power of an indestructible life. See, only an eternal priest can continue to address the problem of our sin before the Lord uninterrupted and forever, given that God's anger against us for our sin is an eternal burning anger. We have to remember that the obstacle, sin, that we have put between us and our Father, He's not only upset in, say, the patterns of time, but as a God who transcends time and is glorious and exists throughout all of eternity, eternity He is eternally angry with us for the sins against His holy majesty. And so obviously, no one who dies is going to be able to outlast this anger that God has against us to continue to intercede on our behalf. So we need the one who has the power of an indestructible life. By the power of His divinity, we need the one who will always live to intercede. And of course, only God has the power of eternity. And then Jesus, the God-man, can't stand as our eternal, eternal priest. If you go back to the Old Covenant law system, if you go back to Old Testament Judaism, the author of the Hebrew says, then you give up having a priest who is able to stand and intercede for you eternally before a God who is eternally angry against you because of your sins. And you'll die in your sins. That's what's at stake. 
I said, you should have known this all along, the author of the Hebrews is saying here, as you read your Old Testament. This is what the first part of chapter 7 is about. Jesus has come, that last verse in chapter 6, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And he says, look, this is not something new that I am telling you, but if you think about that strange character in the Old Testament named Melchizedek, you would have recognized that the priesthood of the Old Covenant law system could not provide the peace and righteousness that you needed. How does he explain this? Let's go through those first ten verses there of chapter 7 just quickly to understand how he's unfolding the argument. Verse 1, This Melchizedek, now this strange Old Testament figure, he was king of Salem, wherever that was, and by the way, the Old Testament is not exactly clear about that, and this priest of God Most High, he met Abraham. Who is this guy? We know who Abraham is, but Melchizedek comes out of nowhere in the Old Testament record. He meets Abraham, who is returning from the defeat of kings. This is when Abraham, by the power of God and by the promise of God, had begun to, uh, to garner his wealth and inherit the blessings. He's getting more and more money. He had defeated, he had plundered kings. He had been blessed by God. He meets Abraham, returns from the defeat of kings, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. Now, when we're going along reading in the Old Testament and we see that God has bestowed these magnificent promises on Abraham, the last thing that we would expect is that anybody would meet Abraham and then Abraham would give him a tenth. I mean, if anything, all the nations and the kingdoms of the earth will come to Abraham when they meet him and they will give Abraham everything that they have, or at least part of it, however much Abraham wants, because if they don't give what Abraham wants, they will be consumed because God is on Abraham's side. But here's this strange man who collects from our father Abraham. What's the deal with that? First, his name means king of righteousness, also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, and without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, we're going to have to insert a word here, made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, we would argue that when the author of the Hebrews says that Melchizedek had no father or mother and he did not have a genealogy. He did not have beginning of days or end of life. Most likely, he's speaking that that is the appearance of Melchizedek to everybody uh, who met him, especially Abraham. And us, when we look back in the Old Testament record, as the apostles did, they don't find a whole lot of information about this Melchizedek. He is deliberately presented to the people of God throughout history and recorded this way as someone who essentially comes from nowhere, has no beginning, cannot be traced, and yet carries with him the authority of God himself. He gives the appearance, we would read, of not having a father or mother, of not having any genealogy, never having been born, no record of his birth, and obviously no record of his death, made like the Son of God. In other words, this man's life was made to reflect the eternal character, the indestructible life, the eternality of the Lord Jesus. So that really the appearance of Melchizedek on the scene, he was prefiguring Jesus Christ Himself, who was eternal. And we should have learned that Abraham and the priesthood then and the Old Covenant law system which would come through the descendants of Abraham, was weaker than Christ Himself, who is Lord over all of that system, which was designed to point forward to Him when He fulfilled it. 
made like the Son of God, is the reading. Melchizedek remains a priest forever. He was made to appear like the Son of God. Nobody knows where this guy came from. He could not figure it out. Abraham was confused. Just think how great Melchizedek was, verse 4. Even the patriarch Abraham gave gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now think about the Mosaic law, he says in verse 5. The law requires that the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect the tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. But this man did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him by the promises. So the typical way in the Old Covenant law system is if you look at the descendants of Abraham, the Levitical priests, they would receive the tithe, the tenth, from the people of God. They don't give the tithe. But here is Abraham giving the tithe to Melchizedek. Verse 7, And without doubt the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In one case the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case by him who is declared to be living. In other words, who is put in history and declared to be one who has no beginning and no end. He's a picture of the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this shows is that the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ transcends and really ends the Levitical priesthood when Jesus comes into the world. Because He is eternal, like this picture of this character character Melchizedek. This is the argument that he's making. You should have seen in the Old Testament, Hebrews, you're so fond of the Old Covenant religion and its priesthood, you should have seen that the priests were actually in Abraham's loins. Look at verse 10. When Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor, Abraham. You should have seen that the priests were bowing to this character, to this character Melchizedek, to the, this priestly line of Melchizedek, so that when Jesus comes, in fulfillment of that priestly line, He puts an end to that temporary Old Covenant priesthood. And you can either have one or the other. And only the line of Melchizedek has the power of the indestructible life. You should have seen that already from the Old Testament. And it's not only, of course, that Jesus was preached through the Old Covenant law system to be the one who lived forever and would come to intercede on behalf of His people and smooth out the relationship with God the Father because He could intercede for us always, but it's also that He wasn't, of course, sinful like the priests. Verse 26, This high priest Jesus meets our need, one who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for His own sins and then for the sins of the people because He sacrificed for their sins once for all when He offered Himself. I mean, the kind of sacrifices, even if they could be offered to atone for our sins by anyone who was sinful or by anyone who had death coming would have to be repeated over and over and over again. And only true God who becomes incarnate has the moral purity to stand before us. A sinner cannot pay for others. And only eternal God who lives forever ever is able to intercede 
for us to make one sacrifice in time, at one point in time, and take upon Himself all of the eternal anger of God against His people. The power of His divinity at work in His humanity, as the Catechism says, to atone for our sins. He did that once for all when He offered Himself. So, Hebrew Christians, don't go back to Old Covenant Judaism. Jesus puts an end to that system which pointed toward Him because He is the true God who lives forever to intercede for us, to remove our sin obstacle, and He does so out of the purity of His holy name. This Jesus is the same Christ whom we worship. And this is the only Christ on whom we rest, the true eternal God. If you take away this basic truth that we've confessed in Article 10, that Jesus is true eternal God, then you don't have a Savior. Now, none of us really are tempted to go back to Old Covenant Judaism, probably. But there are many things that would tempt us to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. But specifically here, to be tempted to deny that Jesus was true eternal God. The point is, if we give that up, we're not saved. Because no one else has the moral purity except God Himself. No one else has the indestructible life except God Himself to be the great high priest for us. This is why we uh, speak to those who are trapped in cults that deny that Jesus is true and eternal God and speak to them and let them know that their souls are at stake. Because if you don't have the Jesus who is eternal God, then you don't have anyone to remove the sin obstacle. This is the Jesus whom we love and serve. It is the only true Christ. And we have been, uh, by His grace, made His children, had our eyes open to understand Him and to worship Him and serve Him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for reminding us of what's at stake in acknowledging that Christ is true and eternal God. And we reject the heresies, all which deny this, that speak of Jesus as some kind of creature. And uh, Lord, though uh, people would speak of being Christians and uh, following Jesus and yet denying that He is true God, Lord, You have humbled us enough to know that our sins rise up against us and that, that simply won't do. Uh, we thank You that, uh, O oh Lord Jesus, that You came to save us and that You had mercy on us, that You became incarnate to become our great High Priest and be appointed in the power of Your resurrection by the Father to always intercede for us. Thank You that even now, at the right hand of the Father, You are pleading for us. And the Lord, we know the own, our own inconsistency in prayer, but we trust that the Father will always answer Your prayers. And we thank You that He will respond with grace to us because of the work that You have done. Thank You, our great High Priest. May we never forsake You. We pray in Your name alone. Amen.